Hello and welcome to What's Left to Do. I'm your host, Janelle Jolly. So we're in the throes of the holiday season, which is only fitting because today we are being treated to a gift. Today's guest is none other than Jane The Kim. (laughs) I was really surprised um, during our discussion about her reflections on her mistrust of politicians as a young, quote, rah-rah activist, um, because those sentiments are shared by so many of us uh, today. I was also very surprised that, in her view, becoming a politician has only served to radicalize her more. Very, very interesting. So come along and ride on this fantastic voyage, friends. Well, you guys are in for a treat. This week's guest, some have called her or some have said about her that she puts the super in supervisor. She puts the care in Medicare for all. One of San Francisco's finest, the Jane Kim. How are you doing? Hi, Janelle. I have never heard that before about (laughs) supervisor. Okay. I like it. I'm going to say that that's often said about me. That's right. You put the super in the <laughs> supervisor. That's right. That's right. Um, Jane, for everyone who is who may be listening who's not from San Francisco, Jane is like one of our progressive, like bright lights. She uh, formerly formerly served on the city, um, the, the board of supervisors. That's our city council. She was the Bernie Sanders California political director in 2020. She is a political woman about town trying to make sure that we all have a better life. So it is really a pleasure and an extreme honor um, that you uh, have agreed to sit down with me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you for inviting me. No problem. So I, of course, I knew about you before I actually met you uh, in person. I met Jane in person during, do you remember this? During the the Black Folks for Bernie event in the Oakland office mm-hmm. when Jane came to visit. Mm-hmm. Jane Sanders, mm-hmm. you are the other Jane. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of, and you were like chatting with me like I was, and I was just like, holy shit, Jane Kim is speaking to me. Oh my God. Uh, and then you, <laughs> a couple months later, you recruited me to help work on the reinvest in dot us a site, um, the the police accountability platform that you were able to recruit um, some some very uh, down denizens of SF to to make. Um, so it's always been a pleasure getting to know you. But I'm really interested, like how in learning several things about you. But starting with how did how did Jane become Jane? Like what? Tell me about your life growing up. It's, I'm sure there's a, uh, there are many stories there. Well, um, I grew up in New York City, huh. born and raised native. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which borough? Queens? I grew up Queens and Manhattan, uh-huh. primarily Manhattan, um, and raised by immigrant parents. Uh, English was really my second language. And I was very much shaped by the experiences of my family mm-hmm. and as a child. And I think this is pretty, not unique, but it's definitely something that is an experience of immigrant children, which is to 
as children to see how your parents who you look up to are treated by other adults in the world. Mm. That becomes apparent to you at a very young age. How did you perceive that as a child? Well, you can tell that people look down upon your parents Mm. or that people talk to your parents like children. You can perceive that starting at a very young age. And I think that definitely shaped um, my politics Mm. and how I viewed the world. Also, growing up in New York City, race and racism was much more in your face. So, you know, going home from school on the bus was always an experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but I also grew up in a very diverse space. And so, you know, I had a lot of, um, I had a lot of friends who were immigrants. I had a lot of friends who were black, who were Latinx. Um, in that sense, I'm really grateful to have had that experience at such a young age. And, you know, about middle school, there was beginning to, in New York City and in other parts of the country like LA, there was these simmering and growing tensions between Asian, largely Korean, small store owners and black residents in black neighborhoods. And I remember just being very struck by that. My mom had a store. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a very different kind of store. Uh, she sold clothes, but I grew up in my mom's store. Sure. It was my after school program, my summer camp. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> your, first, your first math lab. So like, you know, maybe working at the register, counting money, getting people change back. Yeah, I was definitely like, I spent a lot of time in the storage closet. Uh, <laughs> I think reading, drawing, I'm not even really sure what I did. Just being a kid. Yeah, it's just being a kid. And when there weren't people in the store, I would just run around the store. <laughs> uh, and, and again, I was very shaped by watching how hard my parents worked and also how they came to the United States with very little mm-hmm. um, and how they worked to really, you know, provide for, you know, me and my brother. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then growing up, I started to become very aware of race and identity. I was always raised to be very proud of who I am mm-hmm. a Korean American, Asian American. Um, and I think that's something that I really, really credit to my parents, especially my mom for ensuring that I was always proud of being Korean. Now, but did that run up against the, so I, <laughs> I'm asking this because I, I interviewed Kat yesterday, also a Korean American, and she talked about an experience of her developing a pride in her heritage, running up against kind of the desire to assimilate and be or feel more a part of the society than maybe mm-hmm. her parents were. Did, was that was that a parallel experience for you? Or it was just like, nah, I'm no, no, this is what it is. I'm proud. Yeah, of it. I, I from a very young age, I was very proud of my identity. Mm. And maybe it's because I was in New York City. And so I, uh, there, everyone was different. So that space was permitted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was really not a cool kid. Like I did not have a lot of friends. Like mm-hmm. English was hard for me. Because you only spoke Korean at home? Yeah. And like social cues were not like things that I picked up on. I see. Like even if everyone was wearing Doc Martens or mm-hmm. clogs, like I was not wearing it. Mm-hmm. Like I saw it and it did not occur to me that I should go out and buy <laughs> sure. the same pair. And, and so I think that also shaped my experience because I still remember days, you know, in middle school where I'd walk into the cafeteria and I didn't know where to sit down. Mm-hmm. Right? I didn't know where I fit in. And and honestly, that experience very much helped me later on when I got into politics, which we'll talk about later. Oh, sure. But yeah, I, I grew up very um, aware of race and class mm-hmm. 
And, you know, homelessness was very visible in New York at the time in mm-hmm. the 80s and 90s. And so I was very aware that adults slept on the streets. Mm. Um, I still remember in sixth grade when I started riding the buses and subways on my own, you know, adults asking me for money. Um. And that experience of being 11 years old and being asked for money is such a, you know, it's such a stark experience. And so um, around that time, um, I started learning about um, Vincent Shin, mm-hmm. who had been actually murdered 10 years prior. Mm. Um, you know, he was mistaken for being Japanese and he was murdered by a wife, father, and son in Detroit who were, I think, laid off auto workers. Mm-hmm. And during that time, there was that, you know, the United States versus Japan, yeah, yeah, yeah. car manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And they saw Vince, Vincent, he was actually at a bachelor's party wow. um, before he got married and they got angry and upset. And so they followed him and they beat him until he died. And I learned the story 10 years after the fact, but, you know, learning about hate crime, seeing this uprising of tension between Asian immigrants and African-Americans. And then, you know, when I was in high school, the LA riots happened. And I was very lucky at the time when I was in school, you know, I befriended a lot of um, friends of color. And- Mainly because I, f- I fit in more. There weren't a lot of Asian Americans in my school. No, not even Queens or Manhattan. Yeah, the, mm. no. And, and so it was, you know, so I started to learn about the experience of my black and brown friends on the subways being targeted by police. Uh, you know, um, just the disparity. Did you, how did you? In community violence. As a young person growing up in that milieu, how did you understand, as a child, how did you understand the tensions between the Asian American community, be it Korean and or, you know, Chinese, Japanese, whatever? Mm -hmm. How did you understand the tension between Asian Americans and African Americans as a child? Did you like, were you, did you understand kind of like, or were you able to develop a, um, an idea of like, what it stemmed from, why it persisted and like the drivers of it? Or was it just kind of like, ah, I don't know. I know this. I know that there's tension, but I also know that I have black friends at school and that's just, that's just how it is. Like, you know what I mean? Like, were you able to make sense of it as a kid, as a child? Uh, Hard to say, Mm -hmm. because obviously I'm looking back in a rear view mirror as an adult, but certainly by high school, I had an understanding Mm -hmm. of othering and of people of color. And by the time I was in high school, I felt a very deep sense of solidarity with other people of color. That even when there was tension between communities of color, that, you know, we were kind of put in that position, right? It wasn't, uh, it didn't come from a place of power, right? And I, so I started to understand that. And I was very lucky in high school. I had... Um, three incredibly progressive female teachers that really took me under their wings. Mm -hmm. And I I still to this day don't understand why because I was so awkward and quiet. (laughs) But they really looked out for me, took care of me, identified me. And they saw me as a leader and they really invested in me. They put me in programs and in leadership conferences. And I learned about, you know, a wide array of authors Mm -hmm. like Malcolm X Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, Leslie Marmon Silco, um, 
at the time, Amy Tan, mm-hmm. they kind of introduced me to a larger world of writers of color mm-hmm. and to the civil rights movement history. Mm. And so by the time I went to undergrad, I was very politicized. Uh And I knew that from a very young age that I wanted to go into public service. I didn't call it public service. I didn't really know exactly what I would do. And I certainly never thought I would run for office. Mm. Um, But I knew that I wanted to be involved in community work. Did you now, did that desire to be involved in community work, did that just come from your your intellectual, your intellectual endeavors from the, the 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 political figures and books and writings that your teachers introduced you? Was there an event? Was there kind of like a community background of like being political and seeing the strength of organ? Like what was what was that thing? Was it purely intellectual? Was it kind of intellectual and just kind of experiential? Or no, it started with the experiential. So all the stories I told you. Mm-hmm. So as a young person, seeing how my parents were treated in society mm-hmm. and knowing that they were being treated as lesser, as not as equal, and I there think being no good reason for that. That has an indelible impact, I think, on mm-hmm. all kids who watch their parents treated that way, whether they're immigrant kids or kids of color, you see that your parents are not treated as equals. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that is a very, um, it's, it is an experience Mm -hmm. that people share. Not all kids have that experience actually. Um, and then, you know, it was just cumulative, um, through eighth grade, um, like I said, all of these events happening in the world around me, seeing homelessness, seeing race and class disparity. Mm. And then through high school, seeing the eruption of race, uh-huh. like the LA riots and Rodney King. And then when the police officers were acquitted, uh-huh. even at that young age, I knew that that was wrong. Uh-huh. Right. Mm-hmm. And then later my teachers were able to politicize my feelings or put words. Give you a language for it. Give me a language for it. And also put me in a timeline in history. Ah. Right. Mm, mm, so then I started to understand the lineage of which I was entering into, even though, you know, obviously my ancestors weren't involved in the struggles here in the United States. Um, I kind of was dropped into this timeline mm. and I wanted to, be a part of it. Uh, I see. As a child, how would you have understood your class standing versus like your understanding of it now growing up? Or did you, or, I mean, I know that's a, ah, that's a weird way of saying that. Looking back now, how would you describe your class standing growing up? Oh, I see. Um, well, like I said, growing up when I was young, my parents didn't have much. Mm-hmm. That being said, you know, the way the immigration laws worked mm. post-1965 is that even if you didn't have a lot of financial resources, mm-hmm. you were favored if you had some type of educational degree. So my ah. parents did have their education when they came to the United States. And that already put a layer of privilege on my experience mm-hmm. when they came to the United States. Because you didn't have to, they didn't have to go through as much of a gauntlet in terms of immigration because they were educated or? Yeah, so oh. they were privileged in the immigration system. I see. And then I think there are just privileges that come with being educated, whether it's a network or, you know, the degree, yeah. et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, but what I got to see was I got to see my parents struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to see my parents, you know, also do everything that they can to provide for their family. And mm-hmm. I also saw, because in New York, everyone is almost like side by side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see people both with a lot less than you. And yeah. you also see people with a whole lot more than you. That's right. That's right. Right. So that, that divide, although, 
you know, now in retrospect, that income and wealth gap was not nearly as wide as it is yeah, today. That's right. That's <laughs> which right. is crazy. That's right. That's right. Huh. And do you um do you, did you did did you did you have an appreciation as a child? You know how sometimes like you grow up and for most people, you know, most people's parents have to work for a living to keep a roof over their head, feed the children up. Did you have an appreciation of that as a child or was it just like I have toys. I can play with my brother. You know, I'm reading books. I'm just maxing. You know what I mean? Like, was it, did you have an, a sense of like appreciation for like, for, for the things that you were able to? Um, yes. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what I remember the most was being alone a lot mm. because as immigrants, my parents didn't know how to access after school programs ah. or summer camps. So, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time in my mom's store by myself. I spent a lot of time at home by myself. I see. Uh, and I watched a lot of TV. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, the guidance, right? I mean, there were days that I probably watched 12 hours of TV. Like Absolutely. I'd start with the soap, opera, soap operas. <laughs> yes. I can even tell you soap operas to cartoons mm-hmm. to like, was it syndicated? Like the reruns? Yeah, yeah. And then I would take a break during the game shows because I wasn't into that. And then I'd start again with <laughs> primetime, right? Yeah. But thankfully, I also read a lot. Uh uh And thankfully, my parents, um, one thing that they were always willing to get me a lot of were books. Uh, Okay. So I also read a lot. And I think that was a big saving grace for me. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I watched a lot of TV. (laughs) Me too. Don't don't feel bad. (laughs) It's so funny to think about that now. Like, you know, that's parents are, and this is no shade to parents. Parents are like like very hyper aware of that now. But I watched a ton of TV growing up that just, Mm -hmm. that would not be allowed today. No, it would not be a lot today. <laughs> no. Um, okay. So you were you were you were decently political coming through your high school years as w- from a combination of like your teachers opening you up to this new world of um having uh some historical grounding mm-hmm. in how things were the way they were at that time during the eighties and nineties. Rodney King is happening, the LA riots are happening, mm-hmm. you know, there's homelessness was really bad in New York. Mm-hmm. Still really bad now. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was really bad then. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I forgot to mention, I I actually spent four years working at the Coalition for the Homeless in New York City. Ah, as a high schooler, I started my freshman year, and they eventually hired me my sophomore year part time. What to, what was the nature of the work you were doing? You know, I was fifteen, so I was just doing admin work for them. Sure. I mean, literally, like at that time, it was like Lotus One Two Three. <laughs> I was xeroxing checks. Right. I was logging it into a notebook. Uh, <laughs> I was volunteering at all their food runs. So we would get in a van and we drive around Mm -hmm. New York City and drop off food at all the sites where people lived. Mm -hmm. And then eventually I started doing uh, the summer camps Mm -hmm. for um, children who are unhoused. Mm. Did your parents think that that was an important experience, an important work for you or that came from you? You were just like- No, my parents did not get it at all. Really? No, we fought a lot. About what? Everything. Okay. I mean, it was normal- Teenager. Yeah. Um, they didn't get why I did all of this public service and what, what, what did they want for you at that time? They just wanted me to study all the time. Okay. But then I got into Stanford and they were like, Oh, we didn't realize that all of this stuff helped you. (laughs) So they saw it later, you know, you know, in the rear view mirror as something as something that helped me get into college. But I was just very lucky at a very young age to connect to what I felt passionate about. I see. I see. Now, was <laughs> was it was it a little bit of a 
culture shock going from urban. Absolutely. To like, you know, tawny suburban Stanford. Absolutely. What was that? What was that like? The first day I was struck by how big the sky is. Ah. I know that's not something that people think of automatically, but I, I didn't realize that for me, the sky had always been partitioned by buildings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you could actually look up and you would see kind of uninterrupted sky. Oh. And that was what I was most struck by. I came by myself. My parents did not drop me off. Uh-huh. Right. So I, I came into college by myself. Everyone was moving in with their families. Mm-hmm. I had no one to take me to like Target or Whoa. wherever to buy additional stuff. Oh. I really was, you know, kind of taking care of myself. How did but you I, navigate that though by yourself? You just, you just figured it out. Yeah, you figure it out. And you know, I think literally on the first day or second day, I walked into the Asian American Activity Center and I asked for a job huh. okay. with my work study. Okay. And they hired me, nice. which was crazy at the time. Sure. Um, so I knew from the get-go that I wanted to get involved. It was my first time being in a space with a lot of Asian Americans. Really? 25% Asian American. Huh. Um, it was one of the reasons why I was excited to come to California. 50% mm-hmm. students of color. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was really struck by how big the sky is, mm-hmm. how slow people walk, <laughs> yeah. that people smile and say hello to you, yeah. even if they don't know who you are. Right. And I was very struck actually at how separated communities were. At Stanford? At Stanford. Did you feel that it was more separated at Stanford than you, what you experienced growing up in New York? I, I mean, at least in my school, I, you know, because I had grew up with a lot of friends of color. I was, I was, that was more my norm. Uh Um, And when I went to Stanford, it just like our communities of color were more divided. Meaning Asian American. Socially. Yeah. Asian Americans. API was separate from mostly from from black, from Mm -hmm. Chicano, but politically we all worked together. And that was actually my first job my work study job, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Instead of working at a cafeteria, I worked for the Asian American Activity Center as a community building and community organizing coordinator. Mm-hmm. I mean, my job was to build relationships with other communities of color and also amongst the huge API umbrella, mm-hmm. which is also not always yeah. unified, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we all come from different spaces. Right. And so, yeah, my first year, I got to really get to know the student activist community, actually where I met, uh, actually, I don't know if, you know, you know, where I met Misha Olivas, who now runs United Players, uh, who lives a block away from me. Nice. So we have a long, long kind history. of history together. Yeah. yeah. Did you know, did you know for sure what you wanted to do when you came to Stanford? Like when you came to college? I knew I wanted to go into community work. Again, I didn't know what that meant. Uh-huh. Um, but I immediately knew I was going to be an ethnic studies major. Hmm. So I was the first to sign up for Asian American studies, which only became implemented my sophomore year. Gotcha. So I was the first person to sign up and I was the first person to graduate uh-huh. with an official oh, wow. studies degree from huh. Stanford. Was there a, was the, was there, did you experience a kind of, um, any introspection or, or curiosity around maybe like the, the, the strata of like class you, you encountered at Stanford? And I, cause I presume Stanford was, Similar to how it is now, you know, very, you know, many, you know, wealthy people from wealthy families and wealthy backgrounds went there. I assume that to be the case then as it is now or 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 did it feel, you know, like, you know, some people are a little different in these ways. But, you know, we're more or less kind of a 
homogenous student body? Like, was there a, was there like a weird kind of Hunger Games class thing going on then? I didn't perceive it. Mm-hmm. If anything, I think what people's wealth was pretty hidden. Ah, okay. Really? It was not flaunted. Tell me what you mean by that. I, I wouldn't know. Okay. Actually, like thinking back. Uh-huh. Like who- But you you weren't acutely aware that like my parents my parents had to work for a living and Johnny is fourth generation Stanford. His dad is a hedge fund magnate. You weren't like acutely aware of that? You know, I didn't really understand what people's parents did until later. Uh, I just was kind of unaware. No one was showing off by their clothing or with cars. Like that wasn't a thing then. I see what you're saying. You know, like where it was like on your person. Mm -hmm. Where I'm like, oh, you have a lot of money. I'm sure if I kind of delved into it, I would have. But most people I met grew up in California, Mm seem to have grown up in kind of middle-class suburbia. Mm. That was the general sense I got. Okay. All right. Do you have fond memories of your undergraduate college years? Um, I liked college, but honestly, I was just yearning to graduate and get working. Really? You yeah. didn't like want to linger and just- Not at all. No, why? Not at all. Oh my goodness. I was so happy when I graduated. Seriously? Yeah. And I was so excited when I started working. Like I was the so happiest. You, you, pre- you prefer, you were looking forward to graduating, being done with undergrad to like get out in the work world and not mm-hmm. just like party and lose your mind. Not that you did. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good time in undergrad and I'm so grateful sure. for my experience. And I know that I have an immense amount of privilege from going to an institution like Stanford. Sure. Um, and I appreciated it. And I was really happy to join the workforce. Oh, okay. What was your, that's interesting. What was your, what did you do initially after? My first job, I served as a fellow for the Greenlining Institute. Mm-hmm. And that is actually where I met um, one of the first members of my legislative teams. Ah, I think I have a friend who was, uh, who was working there last year. Uh, is it yeah. Oakland? Yeah, they're in Oakland now, but they were in San Francisco when I started. Ah, ah, ah. And then after a year fellowship, I decided to take a few months off and go backpacking in Asia. Nice. Where'd you go? Uh, everywhere. Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, nice. Thailand, Laos, which was amazing, mm-hmm. Vietnam. And of course, I, you know, I ended in Korea. Mm-hmm. And then I came back and I was really lucky to get a job at a nonprofit organization that I had admired for a while, mm-hmm. Chinatown Community Development Center. Mm. And I got a job as a youth community organizer and I remained there for six years. Question. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a little inside, not inside baseball, but for people who are not familiar with San Francisco, did you take that job with that nonprofit because you already knew that in many ways, the Chinese American community in San Francisco is like, like a, that is a force. Like they are a political. No, no idea. No. Or looking like I need to be elected to city office. Well, first of all, I had no intentions of running for office then no. because I was, I was a rah-rah activist. What, <laughs> what does that mean? Jay? It meant that I didn't trust politicians and huh. elected officials. Mm-hmm. I always viewed voting as a very disempowering exercise where bourgeois I was picking, conceit. not bourgeois, that I was, I was always picking the lesser of two evils. It was mm-hmm. never- a candidate that I was excited. There was no Bernie Sanders running, mm, mm-hmm. you know, when I graduated from college that I was excited. Did you, did you get excited about Jesse Jackson's run in the 80s? I was so young. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But yes, I understood the significance sure, sure, of it, but I was so young. Okay. You you were not as politically mature and developed as you are now. I, I was, I was yeah. in elementary school when it happened. I, I remember it. 
um, in the Rainbow <laughs> Coalition. That's right. Um, and, you know, in college, I would meet folks that came out of that. And Jesse Jackson spoke at Stanford oh, right a few times, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, he was great. Uh, no, when I graduated from college, I really poo-pooed on elected officials. I never was going to run for office. In fact, I turned down several opportunities to run for office at Stanford. Huh. People kept asking me to run mm-hmm. um, under the people's platform, which was the people of color, mm-hmm. more progressive mm-hmm. platform. And I was just like, no, that's not me. Like, mm-hmm. I'm an activist. I'm an organizer. Okay, we're going to have to sit here. We're going to have to park here for a second. You, because what this this sounds like, what I and many friends, comrades, colleagues, however you want to put that, people I know and love, experience just like kind of a distaste of the a, a displeasure or a distaste of the formal kind of uh, political arena because, you know, there are, because of just what you see with your plain eyes and the foolishness that you see going on. So what, dive in more about that. Like, what were the things that maybe that, that um, uh, led to that, like, kind of like aversion to, to like, being a formal politician. I, I very much ascribe to Malcolm X's really famous line about Republicans and Democrats mm-hmm. that Republicans are wolves and Democrats are just wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, you can't on, trust either party, party that no one was there mm-hmm. for us. And that, you know, I still remember his line, you know, I have no compassion or mercy in me for a government that pushes people down. And by the way, this is not word for word, yeah, but it pushes people down and then and then penalizes them for not being able to stand up under uh, that weight. Uh, help us. Right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I, so I didn't, I was against the system. Uh-huh. I wasn't going to be a part of the system. Mm, because that meant to you, if you were to be at that time, your thinking was, because if I'm a part of the system, blank, what? Fill in that blank. I'd sell out. Ah. Because I saw good people go into office, mm. or that seemed like good people that went into office. Mm-hmm. It started kind of like I was mm-hmm. as an organizer, as a community advocate, mm-hmm. and you just saw them sell out. Ah. Or that's at least how I perceived yes, it at yes, the yes, time yes. as a young person. I went to CCDC because they had this incredible reputation as being one of the best affordable housing organizations in the city. Ah. When I graduated, um, a friend who was years older than me mm-hmm. that eventually founded At the Crossroads, an organization here that serves young people on the streets, mm-hmm. He said, you know, go look at Chinatown CDC. It's one of the best housing organizations mm-hmm. in the city. Mm-hmm. And so I had been kind of tracking them for a year yeah. before um, a friend of mine told me that there was a job opening there. Mm. And I remember being told, like, you're going to have a hard time working there or even getting a job there because you don't speak Cantonese. Mm. And, you know, half their staff meeting is in Cantonese. Mm-hmm. And I applied anyway, and they hired me on the spot, ah. which was great. Nice. Um, but they hired me to run their youth program, which was you know, I could get away with not being bilingual in Cantonese or Mandarin. I see. And so I was really excited to work there for that reason. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what would come out of that, but I, I know I would have very, very unlikely, I, I would have probably not run for office had I not worked there. So the mm-hmm. connection that you made is apt. Uh. I just wasn't mm-hmm. making that connection when I joined. I see, I see, I see. What, um... Oh, there's so many questions I want to ask you, but I, uh, okay. Okay. What, so during that time at CCDC, mm-hmm. you, you became further uh, integrated in the community here, um, mm-hmm. doing the work um, with that organization, uh, helping with um, affordable housing in the city. Mm-hmm. Where, what was your, 
was there at that point a a shift in your thinking or a shift in your perception um, happening then about about the benefits or or opposite of benefits about being an elected official? Like, yeah. how did that shape your your forward trajectory from that point? Well, being involved at CCDC and being an organizer, you eventually start getting engaged in board of supervisor budget hearings, mm. school board meetings. And it was the first time that I started to see what local elected officials do. Mm. I was not really aware of them uh-huh. in the same way that most people are aware of Congress uh-huh. and the president. Yeah. Same, same going on right now. Uh-huh. And when I started going to these meetings, I started to understand the concept of proximity huh. and how actually with local electeds being on the ground, mm-hmm. there's actually more of a tangible relationship between mm-hmm. the community and those electeds. Mm-hmm. And I started to meet elected officials who started out as public school teachers and as organizers. Mm-hmm. And I saw the good that they were able to do in office. Mm-hmm. And so it, it did change my perception. Okay, a question though. But I, I carved that out just for local. I was like, okay, so maybe local is different uh-huh. from national. I see. But did you, you were, so on the, what you perceived as um, good beneficial work that was, or the work that was able to affect good beneficial change at the local level, that outweighed the foolery that I'm sure you saw as well? I mean, it was, it was still a little distant from me Mm -hmm. at the time, but I started to at least conceptually understand Mm. the power that the right people can have at the local level. Mm -hmm. And what I grew to understand is that actually the most important decision that these local elected officials make, and in fact, that any elected official makes, whether they are a member of the school board, their local city council, state legislature, or a member of Congress, Mm -hmm. is that they get to vote on how to invest our money mm. back into our community, mm-hmm. which is what we talked about yes. with reinvest in us. Yes. So, you know, they're basically a massive foundation. Mm-hmm. In fact, a lot of my friends would always ask me like, what do you do again? Like, <laughs> what is the board of supervisors? Mm-hmm. And I, I had to really think about it. And I was just like, well, um, I basically, I work for a $10 billion foundation, wow. but my board isn't one wealthy family mm-hmm. or a group of wealthy individuals. It's everybody because uh-huh. everyone pays into this fund. Yeah. And my job is to invest it back into the community in a way that reflects our values and priorities. Mm-hmm. And that every budget document is, is not just a series of line items and dollar signs, but they are um, an expression of our values and our principles. So how much money do we invest in public school teachers? Uh-huh. How much money do we invest in police officers? Uh-huh. And in what neighborhoods? Uh-huh. How much do we invest in parks, streets, mm-hmm. um, social programs, you name it, like mm-hmm. all of that is reflected in the budget. It is the most important policy document that elected officials vote on. And I increasingly saw how important it was for members of the community to have a seat at that table mm. and to vote on that. Mm. And, and, and that was the shift for you. From- it was the beginning of the shift for me. Mm-hmm. Um, then I ended up, um, I only worked on ballot measure campaigns at mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. because I didn't, again, trust politicians. Mm. And I was just like, well, at least a ballot measure, it doesn't betray you after election day. That's uh, what I would always say. Uh, but electeds would. Mm-hmm. But then I was, although it took a painstakingly long time, I was eventually convinced to work on this mayor's race. Mm-hmm. Which mayor? San Francisco mayor's race in 2003. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 
I was really reluctant to work on the race, but eventually so many of my friends were working on it. And I did know Mac Gonzalez at the time mm-hmm. and I did like him. I got drawn into his race mm-hmm. against Gavin Newsom. Uh. <laughs> and I was especially active in the runoff. Mm-hmm. And um, eventually they asked me to do more and more things, speak at events. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even do um, a mailer piece for him. What was, and we barely lost that race. What galvanized, what got you over that hump of like, electives will betray you. Why even bother? What got you over that hump? And just like, okay, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna throw down for him. It was a combination of so many of my friends joining the mm-hmm. campaign and, and Matt actually just being a really cool person. Mm-hmm. Like I had met him a number of times before he ran for mayor. Mm-hmm. He was really good to the young people in my um, program, mm-hmm. invited them, spoke to them for an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, he was always very authentic. And I actually, then I went to a bunch of his debates. Mm-hmm. And what I was so impressed by was that Matt could talk about taxes mm-hmm. and policies that I didn't often hear progressives talk about. Mm-hmm. And he was consistent no matter what community he was in. He said the same thing over and over and over mm-hmm. again. And so I, I went in. And it was an incredible learning experience for me. Mm-hmm. At the time, Asian Americans were still not a powerful voting block. In Seriously? fact, no. Huh. In fact, I tried to convince, um, I guess what I'll call a steering committee mm-hmm. to do more outreach in the Asian American community. Mm-hmm. And what I was often told by really good people, mm-hmm. really good progressive people, they're like, Jane, we know that's the right thing to do, mm-hmm. but Asians don't vote. So we need to focus on where people vote. Mm. And I, I managed to get a few events for Matt in the Asian American community. By the time we were still not considered a, a powerful priority. force. Uh, I see. So after Matt lost, and he, by the way, he barely lost that They're race. Right uh-huh. he, he won on election day. He uh-huh. lost absentee ballots. Uh-huh. Uh, the world would be so different today if he I was had won. To, so it, had he won... I mean, it's a moot point, but had he won, would we maybe be looking at not having Gavin Newsom as the as absolutely? The oh wow. wow! Absolutely! Wow! Wow! Okay. Um, you know, a few weeks, Matt is incredibly burnt out and exhausted, sure. and he calls me. I think before New Year's, and he's like, "Jane, I want more people to run for office." Mm-hmm. He's like, "Will you consider running for the school board?" Mm. In fact, if you run, you'll be the only candidate that even works with public school students. Hmm. And at first I was just like, totally not interested, Mm -hmm. flattered you asked, Mm -hmm. said no, 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 several times. Mm -hmm. And then a group of friends of mine started a group called the League of Pissed Off Voters. Oh! Oh, yeah. I was there the first year. They came out with a book called How to Get Stupid White Men Out of Office. (laughs) A few of my friends contributed to it. And it was all chapters about Young people, people of color, immigrants, LGBT folks running for office, local office, winning Mm -hmm. or losing and the impact that they had when they ran. Uh And I was so inspired by that book. I just kind of threw my my hat in the ring without really thinking about it. I was like, all right, I'm going to run for school board. Seriously? Yeah. Okay. And um, there's no way I think I could have done that today, actually. Why? Because I didn't know any democratic club. Mm-hmm. I had never gone to a DCCC meeting. I didn't even know that existed. Mm. I knew nothing. Uh-huh. I was an organizer and I thought I knew everything because I was an organizer. I went door knocking every election season. Mm-hmm. I knew what it meant to organize communities, but I didn't know the political community or infrastructure at all. Mm-hmm. So I went feet first, mm-hmm. got very few endorsements, <laughs> lost my first race. Thanks but had an incredible experience. Did it sting or did it not sting? Or did it not sting because you were just like, ah, okay. 
I'm, you know, I just went in feet first. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad I did it that way because had I gone the route that most people go, mm-hmm. which is to start getting involved mm-hmm. in political clubs and mm-hmm. DCCC, there's no way I would have run. Why? I would have been disgusted by the process. And so I am glad that I was very naive mm-hmm. when I walked into that political process. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward two years later, I started getting involved more with labor uh-uh. and the Harvey Milk Club. Uh, yeah. And of course, the League of Pissed Off Voters, because yeah. now I'm more in the know and people yeah. know me. Yep. So the second time I ran, and by the way, keep in mind, I was a Green Party member for those races. Huh. You were not, you had not come over to the dark side, which is the, Dem- <laughs> the Democratic Party. I was a Green Party member for those two races. Oh. And um, so a lot of people couldn't endorse me. But the second time around, I got more endorsements, mm-hmm. including the Bay Guardian and the Harvey Milk Club. Is and it because you had switched your party affiliation from Green to... I was still a Green Party member. Huh. Harvey Milk Club was the only or one of the few Democratic clubs that would endorse non-Democrats. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that. And I was just running for the third place seat because it was mm-hmm. top three. Sure. And I remember on election night, we did such a great job. I was like, oh, maybe I'll come in second place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we came in first place out of 15 candidates. Whoa, that's amazing. In fact, three women of color won for the first time ever in San Francisco's history. Uh, I ran um, on a slate with an African-American mother, Kim Shreem office. Mm -hmm. We went together and Hydra Mendoza, who then worked for Mayor Gavin Newsom, also won. Mm -hmm. And it was a big deal. I still remember the Chronicle calling me that night because in October or September, they had featured like nine or 10 of the 15 candidates that were running for school board. Mm -hmm. And I didn't make their top nine or 10 candidates. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So on election night, they called me and they were like, who are you again? (laughs) And what do you do? And actually at the time, I had just started law school. Mm -hmm. I actually wasn't going to run a second time. Uh I just got into law school and I was in my 1L first semester year. Mm -hmm. And my friends kind of guilt trip me into running. Mm. They're like, we invested in you, Jane. You have right. to run. You owe us. Pick yourself up. You and I was just like, first. I'm starting law school. And they're like, it's okay. We can do this. Yes. And yeah, we did it. We came in wow. first place. And um, actually winning was harder than losing because huh. when I lost, it was just over. Yeah, 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 yeah. When I won, I the nightmares started. Wow. I started losing sleep. I Why? became incredibly anxious because, you know, after you win and you realize you're about to do this, you're like, wow, like hundreds, thousands of people have come before me and mm-hmm. try to reform and change and improve mm-hmm. our public school system. Mm-hmm. Who do I think I am mm-hmm. that I can do this work that mm-hmm. other people have tried to do? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just felt a lot of anxiety because I was no longer just an advocate and organizer. I mm-hmm. couldn't just go to a school more meeting and say, you know, a 15 year old was shot and killed on our streets yesterday. What are you going to do about it? Uh, now the tables were turned and people would ask me, what am I going to do mm-hmm, about it? Mm-hmm. And do I have the answer? Mm-hmm. Second, I, um, you know, I didn't think I would enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I viewed it as, as a civic obligation, a duty. Mm-hmm. The school district was 90% students of color. Mm-hmm. 70% immigrant, mm. 50% Asian American. Mm. And at the time when I ran, the school board really did not represent mm. the families mm. that it that it represented. It uh-huh. And so I felt it was incredibly important as a young Asian American woman that actually worked with public school students, that worked with immigrant families, that that voice be heard. Mm-hmm. So what happened over the next four years that was truly unexpected for me is how much I fell in love with the work. So you went from, I ran for the school board as a green 
First time I lost. The second time I won, I'm starting law school. What the hell? You know, my friends, you know, put the put the hammer to me like, listen, it's you got to do this again. We ended up uh, coming in first of the three spots that there were available. But then it's like, oh, I'm cursing, not her. Oh, shit. Oh, God. This is okay. This this means I have to take responsibility now Mm -hmm. for what it means to be a public servant in this position. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. And you were like, you were kind of dreading it. But then it turns out like, this is my shit. Again, this is me cursing, not (laughs) not her. But you you ended up loving it, even though you started off dreading it. Why? Well, one, I really enjoyed having a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. And I knew that so many people fought so I could have that seat. Mm -hmm. That, That there was you know, decades of organizers and activists Mm. that had literally died Mm -hmm. so that one day this very young Asian American woman (laughs) could run for school board and be taken seriously. Right. And and so that was one too, was that at first I was very struck by the bureaucracy and the rigidness of being part of um, a government organization. But then I realized that there was actually something incredibly challenging from an intellectual perspective mm-hmm. on solving problems inside a box. People always talk about outside the box. Mm-hmm. What you learn when you're elected is you learn how to make a difference inside the box. It's a very different mm-hmm. challenge, but I grew to really be motivated by it. When you say that, do you mean that as an elected official, you have to accept certain constraints? You can't, you, you have to accept certain constraints yeah. or the, or the, or a certain boundedness to the discussion and the solutions, and you have to make that work. You cannot imagine otherwise. Is that what you're saying? Largely. You can be outside of the box. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's very hard to be outside of the mm-hmm. box in office. Mm-hmm. In fact, when the private sector, when I was later on the board of supervisors would ask me how they could help, I would be like, well, you know, fund, fund ideas that we haven't proven can work. Uh, because when you're investing taxpayer dollars, mm-hmm. when you're investing the people's money, mm-hmm. you want to invest that money in a way that has a track record of success. Yeah. Because if you fail, everyone's like, why'd you put my money there? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? I see. And so there's a lot of restraints uh-huh. in government. Some don't need to exist. Yeah. Some make sense that they do. Yeah. And and yes, you can be outside the box sometimes, but largely you're inside the box. Mm-hmm. And it, But there's still a beauty to that huh. because you can still do things inside the box. Now, mm, give me an example of you or, or some p- politicians you've observed working inside the box beautifully. And I'm listening. I'm just turning the heat on and turning the light on so we're not sitting in the dark. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, interesting. Um, I don't think I've ever thought about it that way. But at the time, the class of 2000 on the board of supervisors very much knew how to work within the box. And they figured out how to be creative with Robert's rules, procedures, motions. I mean, it was just kind of like who, who had read Robert's rules, mm-hmm. um, board of supervisor rules, and the charter more than the other person. I mean, literally, you're pouring yourself over existing information mm. that a lot of people don't read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and so like who knows more? Because then you'll find some kind of um interesting kind of maze mm-hmm. that you can work your way out of. But more than anything, it's just like, all right, here are the things that are in the box. How can I move this here? 
And also you being in the box also changes the box, right? Mm. So, but it is, you know, it's, it's Tell me what still, you mean by that, you being, because this is what, here's what, here's why I want you to expound upon that. Because you can look at it differently. And does that, for leftists, for progressives, I'm not sure which term you prefer, but for us, like, you know, universal benefits for working mm-hmm, people, mm-hmm. does that actually, us being, if if one so chose to be in the box, to hopefully change the box, is that something that, like, is real or is that just something that we tell ourselves to like justify, justify like, you know, wanting, I'm not saying you, but just wanting a public limelight. Cause I think what a lot of people have trouble with is, is, you know, like, you know, I, I have these very plain, or not plain. I have these very plain English common sense desires for policy. So I'm going to get in there so that, you know, I can help make it happen. But then we see that the box usually changes the person, not the other way around. So tell me, but so tell me, help me and other people who are listening understand what you mean by you being in the box, changing the box. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. I was very nervous actually that when I won, that politics would change me Mm -hmm. and that that I was taking a risk mm-hmm. by being in office mm-hmm. that I may not come out of it the way I went in, mm. but actually <laughs> politics, if anything has further radicalized me. What do you mean by that? Tell me. Or further cemented my feelings mm. about systems mm. because when you're in the system, you really see how it fucks people up. Ah, Like it's, it is very intentional. Ah. And it's not kind of like, oh, it just happened that way. Mm-hmm. And when I was in the school district, it was very weird all of a sudden being a part of the system because, you know, people talk about racism very loosely. Mm-hmm. It's just prejudice. Uh-huh. But for those of us that have studied racism, we know it's systematic. It's about power. Yeah. Right. It's not just about like one day a black person seeing a white person being like, I don't like you. I'm going to hit you. Yeah. Or a white person seeing a black person saying, I don't like you. I'm going to hit you. Right. It's like, what happens after that? Mm-hmm. Who gets to call the cops? Who runs the police department? Who who hires and fires a chief, right? Who are the elected officials? You know, it just keeps going up and up and up, right? And so it's the system. It's not prejudice. They're, 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 those are two it's different not things. An individual, it's not just an individual expression of distaste mm-hmm, or dislike. Mm-hmm, it exactly. is more endemic than that, yes. And when I joined the school district, I was part of a system that is racist mm-hmm. and that disproportionately pushed out Black students in particular. Yeah, that's right. Black students um, through expulsions and suspensions. The very first vote I took as a member of the school board was in closed session, which I did not know there was closed session. Mm -hmm. I was a little out of the loop on that. (laughs) There was closed session before the school board. Mm -hmm. And at closed session, what we typically dealt with were expulsions. Uh, I was handed a folder and I was told that we had to expel a kid. And I remember sitting there reading it over and being like, okay, well, I guess this sounds like based on the school code and the ed code, um, we got to expel the students. So I voted for it. But I remember walking out of the room mm-hmm. feeling like this isn't why I ran for the board of education. Mm. I didn't run. So the first vote I took was pushing a kid out mm-hmm. of our system. That's right. And so I spent the next four years reimagining our student discipline policy huh. and bringing in what was at the time a very new concept, something called restorative justice. Mm-hmm. I was learning it in law school. Mm-hmm. So it was a great time. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to bring restorative justice practices into our school district. Mm-hmm. But I knew that um, that actually a lot of the things that I wanted to do 
on the school board. I had all these ideas and I got a binder of all the resolutions school board had ever passed. This is like kind of pre-ish Google. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, and I saw a lot of the work that I wanted to do had already been passed by the school board, Uh, uh, uh. but none of it got implemented. Uh. And I realized that a big part of my work was actually not passing, you know, 50 resolutions a year, Mm -hmm. but my job was actually to make sure that it happened. That's right. Enforcing what's already on the books. Well, also creating resources and an infrastructure that allowed those policies to get implemented. So either making sure that it was funded Mm -hmm. or that there was buy-in from administrators Mm -hmm. that would actually implement the policy. So I went to all of our schools. I visited Mm -hmm. teachers, classrooms, principals, families, parents. And the other thing I loved about my job was being able to bring those folks in Mm -hmm. to a room to be a part of developing policy. Mm -hmm. One of the first things that I learned was there was one restorative justice in one of our middle schools, Mm -hmm. Visitation Valley Middle School, but it wasn't well utilized. Mm -hmm. And so I asked teachers, well, why do you suspend a kid over the restorative justice program? Mm -hmm. Teachers were like, the suspension form is one or two pages. Mm -hmm. The restorative justice form is like seven. And you have to really think about, you know, all all the different questions that are a part of that process. Mm -hmm. And so I immediately understood just from an administrative perspective that teachers don't have time. That's right. Or they don't feel like they have the time to really engage and rectify the harm that was caused Mm -hmm. by students. Because actually in most cases, the students did do something that harmed the community. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like they were unfairly accused. Something really did happen. Um, but we weren't focused on all the things that led up to it. That's right. Right. That's right. Um, and so I spent four years on this, like Mm -hmm. getting buy-in from principals and teachers. I wanted it to get implemented when it passed. And I wanted people to want to do it because I had the votes needed my first year, but I didn't pass the policy until my fourth year Mm -hmm. because I wanted to make sure it actually happened. And also fighting for the funding as well. Are are those examples of you changing the box, you doing the work to go out to the, to the schools and meet with families, meet with teachers, meet with um, administrators to implement the, the good things that I think you, you perceive, you know, you know, this binder full of policies to be um, in order to like, make sure we actually do them or Mm -hmm. to actually get the restorative justice practice Mm -hmm. um, embedded Mm -hmm. in the school system. Is that an example in your mind of you changing the box? Yeah, because I mean, I understood that I wasn't cramming a policy down people's throats, Mm -hmm. that part of it was just understanding from a day-to-day perspective why Mm -hmm. and how it would get utilized. I see. Almost as simple sometimes as what type of forms are we providing teachers? Sure, sure, sure. Right? I mean, that's what I mean about inside the box. It's like, oh, that? We can fix that. That's Had I known that was the issue, yeah. we, we let's let's work on that That's issue, right? right? So uh, that was part of the work. Mm. Did you, How much time do I have with you? We have about 13 more minutes. Okay. Um, here's big questions. Well, one small question. When was it, when did you make this the switch from green to dem and why? I re-registered as Democrat um, when, um, after Obama won the primary. In 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Why? I early endorsed Obama uh-huh, uh-huh. in 2007 when nobody thought he had a chance of yeah, winning. Yeah. I was actually torn between him and Edwards at the time, sure. but I had a lot more friends working for Obama. And at the time it was such a big deal. Like they even sent out a press release that I had endorsed him, mm-hmm. which is so funny to think back on retrospect because I think two months later, I was definitely not a big deal in his campaign. Sure, sure. Um, I was really inspired by seeing this incredibly charismatic and engaging black leader 
who I knew was a moderate Democrat. Sure. I had no kind of- You weren't you weren't fooled like the rest of us. I didn't think Obama was progressive. I thought that he represented something that was very important for our country to achieve. Uh, I knew he was smart. Yeah. I knew he would be a thoughtful leader. Um, mm. But the change I was hoping for was not his policy agenda because mm-hmm. it wasn't in his policy agenda. Mm-hmm. He was not the most left candidate running no, then. And Edwards, who was the most left candidate, wouldn't even, would pale in comparison to the Warren and Sanders of today. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and so, but I, I thought that because he was so inspiring mm-hmm. and he inspired so many young people in particular, that he would activate young people uh, to get engaged in their community, run mm-hmm. for office and push for policy and remain organized I and see. engaged. I see. That's what I was hoping for mm. from the Obama presidency. And I think to a certain extent that happened. Yeah, yeah to a certain extent, not as much as I would like to, yeah, yeah, yeah. but to a certain extent it happened. I wish he kept the organizing and kept funding the organizing yeah. beyond the 2008 and 2012 a presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't disappointed by Obama because I got exactly what I thought I was going to get. Huh. Okay. That's interesting. And at the time I kind of thought, well, you know, national politics is different from local. Uh-huh. We can push mm-hmm. in San Francisco in a way that maybe we can't push in Washington, D.C. yet. Mm. But anyway, I, I fell in love so much with my work. I decided to run for a full-time elected position and run for Board of, board of Supervisors. Mm-hmm. So here, here's, here's what I want to try and this, these are very big questions. Here's By the way, I still love Obama, even though we differ. Do you? I do. I do. I still. I just can't help it. Why? What do you mean? You? Can't I just help love it. him, the human. I, I. Not Obama, the policy person. Obama, the human. But he's not a human. Really? No, Jay. What? I. You know, I mean, we, we don't, we don't agree. We don't, I don't agree with Obama on a number of his positions, but after I, he, after the night of the long knives this year, you can still say, I love Obama the human. I do. Jay, I do. What are you saying? <laughs> All right. Well, we'll, we'll get, get back to we'll that. We'll get back to We're that. We're going to have to, uh, over, over some Pinot one day. Okay. Here's big questions. What, if, if you were to, if you were to have something actionable or tangible or prescriptive for someone who is looking out on our political landscape, completely disgusted, completely dejected, I don't know where to start, everything's terrible, everything's really bad, what would you say, particularly in the lens of where their efforts or where their time or energy would be best spent. Is that within the realm of electoral politics? Is it outside of the realm of electoral politics? We need Is that a false binary. Yeah, we need people everywhere. And tell me why you say that. Because what? Because what? I, Everyone plays their role. What I hear people saying in my head, and this is really just Janelle in her head, is like, there's no room for us in the electoral realm in order to affect change. Look at what happened this year. We have to engage in the erect electoral realm. We just don't have a choice. Why do you say that? So I will say that after 12 years in office, I think the thing that surprised me the most is that if anything, I believe in government and governance now more than ever. Sure. Sure. Well, no, no, not sure. I mean, because when you're in office, you kind of see all that's awful too. Yeah. There were great things, by the way, too. There's some amazing public servants and there's some terrible ones. Of course. Um, But if anything, I thought I would become more cynical and there's a lot to be cynical about. Yes! There's a lot to be cynical about. But two things. One, 
I remember when I was fighting for this tiny little supplemental appropriation for the school district, when we found out that we weren't, we were coming out of recession and we actually had more revenue than we thought we did. And I knew our public schools needed the money and we had been cutting them so much every year. And, um, I couldn't even get eight votes Hmm. to get a veto proof majority, um, for a mayor who already publicly said that they don't support Mm. the supplemental. And the crazy thing was one of the few times the Chronicle and the examiner supported me, (laughs) like they both came out with editorial supporting the supplemental appropriation. I didn't get the eight votes. The mayor vetoed it. Mm -hmm. And I remember just crying in my office. I was like, wow, this was like, I thought everyone would support more money for schools. Like, how could you vote against it? And I remember talking to Tom Amiano because he was the author of Proposition H, which is the Public Education Enrichment Fund, which Mm -hmm. actually got us these additional revenues for our public schools. Mm -hmm. Incredibly needed. They fund our librarians, our art teachers, our PE programs, our restorative justice program, Mm -hmm. janitors, Uh toilet paper. I mean, the things that we have always needed in our schools. Mm -hmm. I remember talking to him and I was just like, Tom, like, why? Why did this happen? And he just, he was on the phone. He goes, Jane, he's like, those motherfuckers are the same. (laughs) They've always been. And I was just like, Tom, that's not what I want to hear from you. I want to know that things are going to get better. Not that things are going to stay the same. Mm -hmm. And he just responded very simply. And he said, well, we do this work because we have to Mm. continue to hope. Uh. Um, And I really hung on to that. And I remember it actually in high school hearing Cornell West speak at my local Y Mm -hmm. and how he talked about how they're optimists and prisoners of hope. Mm. Optimists see the evidence in the world around them and they believe that things are getting better. Uh And he said, I'm not an optimist. Mm -hmm. He's like, but prisoners of hope see the evidence in the world around them and they see that the world is not getting better, Mm -hmm. but they remain committed to changing those conditions and evidence. Mm. And, and so I think that really expresses how I feel, which is that I continue to believe that a democratic institution and governance is the right infrastructure. Okay. But we have to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And we can't ever give up. I mean, we just can't. Too many people are depending on the system to work the right way. Mm-hmm. And, and people are depending on us to fight for a seat at that table. I understand. And to be there. I'm not fussing at you. I understand what you're mm-hmm. saying. But what would you say to someone who just, who has, who just would barf at the idea of like using their time and talents in the electoral realm, where else outside or adjacent to, would you say like, okay, if electoralism isn't your thing, think about, think about getting involved here, because I, I hear what you're saying, because it, it is a dialectic. We need mm-hmm. we need elected officials to legislate things like Medicare for all into mm-hmm. existence. That, but it doesn't happen without the activists and organizers. Uh-huh. Elected officials can't do that by themselves. And I, I learned that as an elected, just because I am progressive doesn't mean that legislation is going to pass. It, it passes because there are organizers and activists on the ground that push my colleagues and me um, and also kind of give me, quote unquote, cover to do this work because it's what people want. Because I could push Medicare for all and my colleagues and voters might be like, nobody wants that. 
But if they're organizers and activists being like, yeah, we want that. And Jane's actually not doing enough. Uh, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That that's an important part of that struggle. And so I don't want everyone to go into electoral mm-hmm, politics. Mm-hmm. I want people to understand the role that it plays, uh-huh. but we need folks everywhere. We need uh-huh. folks that are pushing. Uh-huh. We need folks that are negotiating. We need folks that are running for office. Mm-hmm. We need everybody at the table. So don't, so is your, is what you're saying, don't be so provincial about like the thing you could be doing. Just find something, plug mm-hmm. in somewhere mm-hmm. because it'll take all of us. I, yes, very much so. I, I don't think that, you know, that even everyone has to dedicate their paid career. Sure to this work, but we should all be engaged because it's our community. Mm -hmm. And we have to stop viewing this work as altruistic. Mm -hmm. It's not just about others. (laughs) I mean, we do this work for ourselves. Like I am better off. I am safer. I am happier when all of my neighbors have after-school programs to send their children to, can afford to go to college, can can get the healthcare that they need and deserve. I am better off in that situation and I will feel safer in my community, my neighborhood if all of these things happen. So yes, I believe in big government. I believe in a strong foundation of which we give to everyone Uh so that there is more equity. It's why I fought for tuition-free city college. That's right. And why I'm so proud of the work that we were collectively able to do. Mm. There was a huge group of folks that came together for that. Yep. And we won that. We're now the only city in the country to have made community college tuition-free for all of our residents, regardless of age, income, or any type of GPA Mm -hmm. prerequisite. Mm -hmm. And that is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And as as elected officials, one of our jobs is to keep rethinking policy because Mm. at one point in the mid 20th century, we made a very expensive and radical decision to fund a free and universal K through 12 public education system. Can you imagine trying to do that today? Right. I, I literally have this argument. It would never happen. Or social security or any of these Yeah, things. it would not happen. Yeah, that's right. And, but we take it for granted. Uh-huh, we do. So when people are like, oh, I don't want to pay for rich people to go to college. It's like, first of all, shut up because you sound stupid. And, or I don't believe in handouts. Yeah. Well, I'm like, okay, so you want to get rid of K through 12 education because that's one of the biggest government handouts, A. And B, do you want to make public schools means tested? That's right. Like, should Mark Zuckerberg have to pay for his kids to go to public school if, for example, he was sending his kids to public school? (laughs) No, we would never expect that. So why why shouldn't we expand that that notion to K through 14 or K through 16? Because, by the way, also in the mid-20th century, a high school diploma was enough to get a middle-class job. Yeah, And actually, our middle-class grew in the 60s and 70s. And let's take race out of that picture. The um, middle class in America was larger yeah. than the upper and low-income yeah. classes in America. And it was, and if a strong and large middle class is very important for a democracy. Yeah. And um, a free and universal K through 12 education really grew the middle class. And now we're in 2020, 70% of all jobs require some type of post-secondary right. degree training certificate. So we got to expand on that, comp- that social compact. And, and by the way, when people complain about paying for rich people's kids to go to college, well, I say, well, we need progressive taxation yeah. to ensure that those who are benefiting the most from society's infrastructure yep. pays the most. That's right. So yeah, their kids should good for free. Yeah. Right. That's it. Last question, because I know you have to go. What 
<laughs> and you're going to cuss me out after I turn this off. Would would Jane would Jane of her mid-20s, 20, 25-year-old Jane, who is a part of the Green Party, who was afraid of getting involved or becoming an elected p- official because you didn't trust them, what would she say about Jane now? Mm. Mm, come on, tell the truth. I don't know. I, I hope that that Jane would be proud of... I think she would be proud. Huh. And relieved. Huh. Because our skepticism is just a way to protect us uh-huh. Uh-huh. and not feel that hurt and pain later. We we all want the system to work. Yeah. We all want society to work out for folks. So I think there would, if anything, be a sense of relief that maybe, maybe this can work. Huh. Right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, because if anything, that was a defense mechanism on my part to mm-hmm. not feel disappointed. Ha! To not feel betrayed, to not be hurt, because I knew it. Uh-huh. I already knew before you did it to me. I knew you were going to hurt me. I knew you weren't going to take care of me. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Right? I see. I see. That makes sense. Oh, that was good. That was a very good. Because I think that's exactly what, and I'm not, I'm, I am not a, I'm not saying do get involved in electoralism or don't. I think that's up to, up to the individual. But I think a lot of what is, um, a lot of what underlies that aversion or that skepticism is just a desire to not be disappointed and be disappointed or, or fear of disappointment in self about not being able to deliver on, you know, on the, the, the things that you value, that you hold dear, that you are very serious about, that you're very focused on. Mm -hmm. I think that that's, I think that you just hit on something that a lot of people and I do want to end on this note. I mean, first of all, I, I don't want to make anyone run for office. It's a tough job. That being said, we need more people, more good people that are grounded in community to run for office. And we need more people to be heading departments and agencies um, that are principals. Uh, we need them up and down the line. And we need good people in the private sector. The private sector has a huge role to play because as policymakers, you know, we put kind of laws on the books, but obviously, you know, we as a society and community, we breathe life into these policies and laws and make them real. What I am really comforted by is just the change that I have seen over the last so 20 years. So you have years. seen a change. Well, A, let's talk about the Asian American community in yes, San Francisco. Sure, sure, sure. When I moved here, not considered a power base, mm-hmm. now an incredibly powerful force. Very you true. don't see any campaign that doesn't have lit in Chinese. That's right. That hasn't hired Chinese speaking organizers. Right. Um, so I think that is huge. The mm-hmm. Asian American community has both grasped and and taken on that power. Uh-huh. And is now the, one of the most consistent voting bases in That's San Francisco right. in the space of 20 years. Mm-hmm. Granted, it was, you know, a 170 year process to get there. <laughs> sure. You know, unlike many places in this country, Asian Americans have been in San Francisco since the beginning. That's right. Um, but two, I am incredibly heartened by the immense footprint that Bernie Sanders has now had yeah. in electoral politics. Yeah. And granted, there obviously that wouldn't have happened without all the people. Of course. That was hungry for that agenda. That's right. That's and right. donated you know, $27 or $19. Their money and their time. Mm -hmm. And so in 2020, Senator Sanders was often the top fundraiser in the Democratic Party for the primary every quarter, right? Based off of donations under $20. That's right. 
And here in California, we won 47 out of 53 congressional districts. We sure came in did. first place. That's right. We, and we didn't just win San Francisco and LA, which I think people were like, oh, that's more progressive. We won in Central Valley. That's right. Inland Empire. Inland Empire. Yep. Um, San Diego, mm-hmm. Orange County. We won in areas that we weren't supposed to win. Yep. And so actually, I do think that people are more hungry for a economic redistributive agenda. Absolutely. And they are tired mm-hmm. of, of a system that has veered so wildly um, to support the powerful and the wealthy. Mm-hmm. By the way, that's that's always been the case. I mean, you even see that when you walk into a kindergarten or first grade classroom, yep. the bullies do have more power, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and so we do have to come together to be a check mm-hmm. because otherwise the bullies will run governance and government. And that's what we're seeing today. Yep. But I am very heartened by um, that race. It was an honor to have a presidential candidate to fight for that I 100% believed in. That's right. That did not exist for me when I was younger. So to have a candidate that was saying everything that I wanted to hear Mm -hmm. was incredibly empowering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, fast forward eight months to November. Uh, I was, uh, I know, I know. (laughs) Things were not always great at the national and state level, Mm -hmm. but at the local level, I was traffic tracking about 50 candidates Mm -hmm. that run, that ran on, a platform that talked about a Green New Deal, yep. tuition-free college, Medicare for all, Medicare for all mm-hmm. and 40 of them won. Huh. And, and there's probably more. I mean, these are just the races I was tracking. Yeah. 40 local candidates often were outspent and still won their local water board, school board, city council right board, on. supervisor race. Mm-hmm. And two thirds of those candidates were women of color. Ah, nice. Two thirds nice. were women of color. In fact, um, almost all of the candidates that I was tracking were people of color. And I think what that, means in the state of California is is a good thing because one, we're building our bench because yep. these are the folks that will run for Absolutely. state legislature and Congress later on. Absolutely. And two, 75% of California voters under 25 mm-hmm. are people of color. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. The majority come from refugee and immigrant backgrounds. Yep. So our voting base is only going to grow. If we, if we, if we keep our eye on the ball, if, we don't keep, take that's people right. vote for granted and we have a political program that that's is right. affirmative and speaks to the needs of these that's people. That's right. And and by the way, Bernie outright won mm-hmm. voters under 45 in California. Absolutely. He won more voters under 45 than Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Bloomberg combined. Yep. And so that base is just going to continue to grow. So I believe we have progressive movement has a really big future ahead of us if we continue to engage and organize. Mm. And not, again, not everyone has to be an electoral organizing, mm. but be active, organize in your community, yeah. serve, volunteer. Like you don't have to volunteer at an election. Like just yeah. volunteer at your local community-based That's organization right. or neighborhood center. We need center. to get better at building, this is what Holly was saying, we need to get better at building durable organizing capacities or mm-hmm. capabilities so that we don't just drop off after an election mm-hmm. and we're able to come together, congeal, and like, and, and and be a forcing function. We should be using van and PDI year round. Like Probably not just for elections. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We should be going door to door for COVID testing. Uh-huh. We should be going door to door with services. And so food. That, and food. So we're not just coming by to ask for your vote. That's right. We're showing up. Mm-hmm. We're building community. We're like, we're a community. We're in this together. Yeah, that's right. Can we, are you working on, are you, do you know of any efforts about like kind of Maybe open sourcing is the right word, but open sourcing Van and PDI. I don't. I was hoping. Yeah. I, I think you should need to tell me more about that. You know. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. We'll talk. Uh huh. 
From what I understand, there are efforts to do that, which I am extremely excited about because it's like, because then we can find something to organize around and like utilize these tools and build from there. You know, when I was on the board of supervisors and I was the only supervisor to take this position, Mm. I um, typically voted against licensed software contracts Mm. and really pushed for open source Mm. software Mm -hmm. uh, within government. Mm -hmm. Um, they're, they've been talking about this and implementing this in different parts of Europe, like yeah, Germany. Yeah. Um, I do think that there needs to be a greater awareness mm-hmm. on the significance and importance of this issue. And also we see tremendous amounts of taxpayer dollars. Yeah, 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 no, I'm with you. And I think from what I hear, the chatter, there is there are efforts to do just that that I'm extremely excited about because I don't like how restrict or prohibitive it is to like have use of these tools. And I think that that's one thing, not the thing, but one thing that really can we can leverage to mm-hmm. benefit not just here in San Francisco or California, but across the nation. So we'll mm-hmm. uh, we'll talk about that. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. You have no idea. This is. I'm never as this good as like not getting all up in somebody's business. I'm like, we got to hit all these things before she has to leave. But well, I I just often have to say that I'm grateful to Senator Sanders for so many reasons. But the other is that I got to meet you. Yep. You're okay. She is. She's real good at being real sweet, just like this. She thinks she's slick. No, (laughs) that is one of the things that I'm most grateful for. I got to meet and be in community with people that Mm -hmm. I know that I know like forever. Mm-hmm. Some of these people get on my nerves because they convince me to do things like run for ADEM. And I'm like, why? No, don't ask me. Ask somebody else. But we're, it's, it takes all of us. So I'll throw my hat in and we're, we're going to do the best we can. And it's not going to stop or start here. This is, this is creating a better future is a lifelong commitment. So I'm happy to be doing that uh, with people like you. Thank you, Janelle. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. And surely this will go down as what's left to do's shortest episode because Jane is booked and busy, honey. Had to grab her for that hour. (laughs) But seriously, please check out some of our other episodes and like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We've got some really great guests planned for 2021. And until then, we'll see you next week. Thank you.